What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast. I've got something really cool for you this week. It's called the Cash Flow Calculator. This thing is really nifty. So it's a predictive spreadsheet matrix, and I know that sounds crazy, but really you just plug in your potential passive real estate investments into it, and it will assimilate them and show you your projected returns over time. You can literally quantify how to buy back your time piece by piece. Eventually, we'll put together a more robust version and sell it, but for now, it's 100% free, so grab it now while you still can at intelligentpassiveinvestor.com. Okay. On this show, I try not to bring on a thousand real estate syndicators unless they have a legal background and they're a lawyer or a former lawyer, just so they can share their story about escaping the billable. But today we have one of the biggest names in the space and someone that I personally hold in very high regard, Dan Hanford. Dan is a true entrepreneur and has been since college. He's built multiple seven-figure businesses from the ground up, including a series of orthopedic medical clinics and most recently, a large-scale real estate investment company with hundreds of thousands of dollars in assets under management. He's the founder of the Multifamily Investor Nation and a group consisting of over 35,000 investors and syndicators, and he's also the host of the Multifamily Investor Nation podcast. Without further ado, Dan Hanford. This is the Passive Income Attorney Podcast, where you'll discover the secrets and strategies of the ultra-wealthy on how they build streams of passive income to give them the freedom we all want. Attorney Seth Bradley will help you end the cycle of trading your time for money so you can make money while you sleep. Start living the good life on your own terms. Now, here's your host, Seth Bradley. Dan Hanford in the flesh, the man, the myth, the legend. What's going on, brother? Nothing much at all, Seth. I, I'm actually lying. There's actually a bunch going on in the background, but uh, right now, not much going on. Just you and I having a good conversation. Oh, I love it, man. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. So Glad to be here. Yeah, of course. So, you know, you've been on so many different shows, including your own. So I'll just start out and ask, you know, who is the real Dan Hanford? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a family man for, for first, right? Because I try to do, I try to create the lifestyle that I have around my family, right? Instead of the other way around, instead of trying to create the business that I want and having the family fill in the cracks. It yeah. was actually uh, years ago, actually, it was uh, my wife's uncle. And at the time, he wasn't my wife's, he was still my wife's uncle, but he wasn't, my wife wasn't my wife, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so, yeah. It was a gentleman that I had worked for, and and he had on his desk he had a a jar, and in that jar was uh, a a jar of walnuts, full walnuts in the shells, and rice. And I asked him one day, I was like, I'm, I'm a little curious, like what, what's what's the purpose of this jar right here? And he said, Well, this is a reminder for me. He said because my my family represents the walnuts. And everything else in life that I do represents the rice. But he, and he said, if I, put my, if I put the rice in this jar first, which is everything else, then I don't have enough time for my family. But if I put the walnuts in first, then everything else in life fits in perfectly. And it all fits into one, one jar, right? And ever since then, that's really kind of what allowed me to kind of figure out, you know what, that's how I want to structure my life. And, you know, really to me, that's, that's what I try to do. I try to focus everything around the family and, you know, and, the, and uh, making sure that the business is really secondary. 
I love that, man. It's tough to, you know, a lot of people get that backwards, right? Like they start focusing on the business and building their business and they kind of forget about the things that are really important, which is the people in your life, your family, your friends, and, and the things that are going to last. It's true. And my, my wife and I always make it a point to do things with our family, with our, with our children as well. So we have four children ranged from 10 years on the oldest side to three years um, on the low end. And so life is definitely busy. We have yeah. three girls and a boy, but we always try to make time for them. You know, even, even just last night, you know, my, this is a, we're, we're recording this on Tuesday, but um, on Monday nights with our church, we have a basketball, men's basketball program that we put together for an outreach program. And I bring my eight-year-old son there with me. And he goes and he, he doesn't usually play with everybody else because like, he might get hurt, you know, but yeah. he'll you know, help practice or go grab some of the balls. And he's always participating with, some of the, with a lot of the things that we're doing too. Yeah, that's great. That's great. All right. Well, you know, despite all of that, we have, you know, a really diverse and kind of a unique listener base that, that might not know who you are. And so even though you're one of the biggest names in the space, so maybe tell us a little bit about your background and, and your story so our listeners can kind of get a frame on you. Sure. So I actually, uh, years ago, uh, started in chiropractic college, right? And in chiropractic college is when I started my very first business. And my very first business was an online company. And I still have it today. It's called shopanatomical.com. And we sell all types of skeletons and skulls and brains and hearts and plastic models, anatomy models to colleges, doctor's offices, uh, universities, and, and you know, medical places all across the country and around the world. And I've had that company. I started it in chiropractic college because all of the students in chiropractic college need a spine model, a model of the spine to learn all the different structures of what they're going to be adjusting the rest of their life, right? Yeah. And so, and when I, when I, one of the things that I heard in the, in the classes is that the spine model that was in the, uh, in the, in the bookstore was uh, priced way too high. And so for college students, you know, everything is too high, right? right? But I went into the bookstore and I was like, I wonder if I can figure out who makes this and maybe just try to get a better price for it and resell it. So in the bookstore, they were selling it for $189.95. And I decided to go to the bookstore and figure out who the manufacturer was, found one of the distributors of the manufacturer, which fast forward today is one of our biggest competitors, but found the <laughs> distributor and they told me they could get it to me for $65, including the shipping. Wow. And I was, I was completely stoked about that. So I was like, I'll just mark it up by like five bucks. But, you know, being the kind of marketer mindset that I have, I didn't want to sell it for 70. So I did it for $69.95, yeah. right? And I put an order form together and I put a PayPal link together back then. And I uh, went through went in front of each one of the classrooms in chiropractic school and basically announced that I was selling this spine model for $69.95. And it's the exact same one that's in the bookstore for $189.95. And the first full week of selling those, I had 80 orders with cash up front in hand. I didn't want to worry about IOUs from college students. Yeah. So I had all the money up front. <laughs> And sold 80 of them the first week. And then so I, a light bulb went off in my head. And I was like, if I could sell 80 in this first week, I wonder if I can go straight to the manufacturer and cut out the middleman. And right. so that's what I did. I went straight to the manufacturer. I remember talking to the lady. Her name's Marilyn. I remember talking to her. She doesn't work there anymore, but her name is Marilyn. And I remember talking to her and her going, well, how many times a year can you do this? And I'm like, well, in chiropractic school, they go off of a quarter basis. So every like four times a year, you have a new student body coming in. So I'm like, I, four times a year, I could probably sell this many. And she said, I tell you what, I'll set you up on our highest tier discount so you can get the highest level of discount. And so now that spine model is $42.48. And she said, I'll also throw in the shipping for it. 
And of course, so that went from just like a couple hundred bucks to some really nice money for a college right. student. Right? And so that kind of started my you know, foray into that online company. And I had already had a background prior to getting into the chiropractic school of doing web design, web hosting, networking, things like that. So I took those skills, built out a website, first started selling them on eBay because that their, their product catalog opened me up to all of their anatomy models, over 2000 products that I can now sell. And so I started selling some of them on eBay, then started my own website. And even today we sell over $100,000 a month and it's a seven figure a year business. And I have a team that runs that for me. But that business is what allowed me to start my next business, which was the chiropractic clinics. And then fast forward a little bit, we actually took the chiropractic clinics and now have merged them into a medical clinic because I, er I learned early on that I could only see so many patients an hour, right? And so yeah. even though I was owning my own business and I worked for myself, I still only could see so many patients an hour. Plus, every time I wanted to go on vacation, I still had to pay the staff, still had to pay the utilities, still had to pay the overhead. So I was paying to go on vacation. So I never wanted to go on vacation, right? And so I decided to earlier on hire some associate chiropractors to work for me and then fell in love with the medical side of it because more, more and more I didn't have to do it, right? Because I couldn't do it. So I was just a chiropractor, not anything to do with the medical side. So I started hiring on the medical doctor and the nurse practitioner and then we started to expand. And now today we have four non-surgical orthopedic medical clinics that all we do is medical services in those clinics. And I have one here in Columbia, South Carolina, got one in Charleston, Greenville, and, and then North Augusta, South Carolina. And the cash flows that we were receiving off those businesses, because they, all the businesses were debt-free, including the clinics, because of the cash flow we were receiving, we were paying a lot of money to the government in taxes. And sure. we really wanted to reduce our taxable liability. And the way for us to do that was real estate. And I already, so I wanted, I actually stepped away from the full-time clinic management, promoted my COO to the CEO so I could step out. It's been over three years since I've actually been in one of my clinics and he runs all the day-to-day -day operations for me. So now that business is passive for me as well. But the real estate side, I didn't want to start small. I already accomplished a lot up to that point in my life. I didn't want to go back and go start with single family or small multis or anything like that. So yeah. I went out of the gate, hired a great mentor that was doing big things that I wanted to be able to do and partnered with him as well as another group in my first couple of deals. And our very first deal was an $8.9 million deal, 130 units out of Greenville, South Carolina. And then fast forward to you know last year, we closed $156 million worth of assets and raised a little over $61 million between four different assets in 2020. And we're on a great trajectory for 21 as well. Wow, man, that, that's incredible. I, and I think you identified a, a couple of different issues that a lot of our listeners um, encounter on a regular basis. And that's that they're trading their time for money and they are paying a ton in taxes to the government because they're W-2 employees. And it seems like those were two of kind of the, the aha moments that made some pivots in your entrepreneurial career that made you kind of think out of the box and like, well, what can I do to fix these problems? It was, it was a, it was a, it was a big decision for me because for one, it's hard, right? Because when you're in something all the time, a lot of times it's hard to step away and actually look at the overall picture of everything. But to me, it was a very pivotal moment. And, you know, I'm, I'm like the typical entrepreneur, right? Or, or business owner that they think that they can do everything better than everybody else. And, right. and I, and I still today have that problem. Like I still feel like I can do everything better than everybody else. And it's a mindset issue for me. I just, I just have to realize that that's who I am. And so I have to constantly battle that mindset, but I have to realize that if I can, you know, hire other people to do what I, what I'm doing and they can do it 
80 to 85% as well as me, then it allows me to be able to kind of grow and expand and be able to have the additional cash flows, be able to have the same problem of trying to figure out what to do with it so I can reduce that taxable liability. Yeah. Let's go into that a little bit because, you know, we talk a lot on here about delegation and automation and trying to, to just delegate some of our, our tasks off so we can create more time for ourselves. And you seem to be a master at that. You've done it in multiple businesses. I mean, do you have any, I guess, general tips for our listeners? I mean, many of them are, are busy professionals like attorneys and, and things like that, but maybe just some general tips on how to get over that hump and, and delegating some of the, the daily tasks that, um, that kind of plague you from you know, going as far as you can go. Sure. Well, for, for me, one of the, one of the hardest things is again, delegating, delegating tasks that I know that I can do. Right. And obviously when you're starting a business, you have to do everything, right? I mean, you're doing everything from the, the front office to the back office to the janitorial, right? So you have to be able to, you'd be able to do all that stuff. But as you get revenue into the business, you have to figure out what are some of the lower level tasks that you are doing right now that you could easily turn off to somebody else. And one of the flaws that I had early on is that because I didn't have a lot of revenue in the beginning, I tried to hire people at the cheapest rate I could. And guess what you yeah. get? You get the cheapest <laughs> labor, right? You get yeah. the, the cheapest people. And so to me, what I do now is when I need to find somebody to take off a task for me, I hire somebody and I pay them really well and I get a good quality person in that position. Is it always a 100% perfect thing? No, it's not. Nothing ever is. But I'll tell you, the more I've started to try to attract higher quality people, the more I've been surprised. And it's actually taken a lot more off of my plate to be able to delegate those things than trying to do it on my own. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I mean, you get what you pay for really, right? It's, it's a mindset thing though, because in the beginning, especially when you don't have a lot of revenue, you're like, I just need to hire the cheapest person, yeah. right? You know, do the, do the McDonald's you know, way where you just try to hire the, the, the lowest wage person you can and just make it as dummy proof as possible. But if you really, truly want to grow and scale, to me, there's certain high-level tasks that you need to find that high-level person for and you don't have to worry about you know, babysitting them and micromanaging them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you're starting out, you're like, I don't even want to hire anybody at all, let alone somebody that's going to cost a lot of money. So you, you just go for that low-hanging fruit and it end up, ends up costing you more money than if you would have hired somebody a little bit higher quality. Exactly, yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's jump into the weeds a little bit here. You know, let's switch gears to, to syndication. So, you know, whenever you're looking at, from a passive investing uh, perspective, you know, what are some of the, the red flags that listeners should be looking out for? So I actually uh, wrote an article about this recently. There's a called the, the seven red flags for passive apartment investing. And, uh, and if you, you want to take a look at that, you can actually link with me on LinkedIn, just go to linkwithdan.com and that'll just take you straight to my LinkedIn profile just so you can connect with me there. But uh, there's several different things we can go through. We'll go through each one of them at a time. And if we have time for all of them, we could go through all of them. But one of the first things that I look for, because my wife and I personally invest in other operators, right? So we're not just investing in our own group. We want some additional diversification. So right now, our portfolio consists of 38 different LP investments with about 14 different operators right now. And so we have put together this list of these seven red flags to help investors understand kind of what they should or should not be looking for. And one of the first things in there is that you want to make sure that the people that you align with in an operator in a syndication is you want to make sure that they have some form of background 
and success in business. Okay. And the reason why I say success is because there's a lot of people that we know that have a that have run a business, right? But they've run it into the ground, right? right. I don't want just somebody who knows how to run a business. <laughs> I want somebody who has a track record, who has a successful track record and actually successfully running a business. So that's one of the biggest things first right off the bat that I want to make sure I have. And it doesn't necessarily mean that all the partners on the team have to have that, but I want to see at least one of the managing partners has some form of background in business to allow us to be able to allow me to be able to feel comfortable that they know how to make pivots and make decisions when it comes ne- when it's necessary. Yep. Yep. One of the other uh, uh, kind of red flags that I always look for is I want to make sure that, uh, and I say red flag, if there's, if, if some of these things are present then I don't do it. So like if there's, there's not somebody present that has a successful background in business that I won't invest. The, the next thing that I'm going to look for is I want to make sure that they have preferred returns offered on the, on the, on the property. And so I want to see a preferred return at the very minimum, usually between about that six to 8% is usually what I'm looking for is yeah. a six to 8% preferred return. And if they're, if they're not doing a preferred return, it usually means that that operator is tight on finances and they need the monthly cash flows for themselves to live off of. So they can either you know, quit their job or, or whatever they're doing. And for me, I don't want to have that person managing my, my money, right? And it's usually somebody who is working part-time. That's one of the other red flags is somebody who's part-time in the business. I don't want somebody who's working a corporate America job and who's, you know, who's, who's who doing a, do, working a W-2 and they're trying to manage my investment in the nights and the weekends. Mm-hmm. I know that this is, this, these types of investments are not part-time investments. You have to have somebody full-time efforts monitoring the investments every single week and every single day to make sure that they're successful. And that's what I always look for is, is making sure that there is somebody um, that is uh, uh, full-time in the business, right? Now, that doesn't mean somebody who's maybe, you know, active in the business, they can't, you know, still be part of a team. Like you can still be part of a team and do and fill other roles and responsibilities, but not be the main operator in a particular project. So there's right. ways to get started in this business, but I don't want that to be the main thing that somebody is doing and entrusting them with my funds. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and going back to that preferred return piece, you know, for our listeners that don't know, you know, why is that advantageous for them? So in that waterfall structure, that's the first hurdle in the waterfall structure where you actually have a hundred percent of the cash flows going to you as the investor before the operator gets any type of split. Right. And in, in one of the other things that I, I actually uh, talk about is the, the, the thought behind a true preferred return or a, what they call a, a Perry pursue preferred return. And to me, I always look for a true preferred return. A true preferred return is where you're receiving a hundred percent of those cash flows. And then there's no catch up, right? Where the operator actually goes back at that point and says, okay, now I'm going to catch myself up as if we were getting this, the, the 70, 30, 20 splits, whatever it is up until that point. To me, the deals are too tight right now in order to make sense of that, unless there are other things modeled into the underwriting. For example, a refinance. If you have, a, if there's a refinance modeled into the underwriting, big red flag, right? To me, I run the other way the moment I see that because that means that the deal is so tight and their, 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 their fees are so high that in order to make it work, they have to model an under, a, a, a refinance in it. And I've been in a deal before where they modeled a refinance and it didn't turn out the way they projected. And it's because they, they, you don't know on a, on a refinance when and if you'll be able to do it. So it's hard to time that. It's also right. hard to 
time, the terms, the interest rate, the loan to values, all those are going to be fluctuating. And so you don't really know for sure what those terms are going to be whenever you get to that point, whether it be a year and a half, two years, three years down the road. So I always don't want, I, I never want to see a refinance inside of that underwriting as well, at all. Yeah, that makes sense, man. All right, where, where are we at? Number five? Yeah, we're at number five now. So, I, so the first, <laughs> I, I hope I can get all these things. So um, another, another one is going to be skin in the game, right? I want to see that the yeah. operator has skin in the game. Now, some people might say, well, what if they just roll in their, their acquisition fee? Well, that's still skin to me, right? They're still yeah. getting paid that. I don't have a problem with that. But I do like to see a minimum of, of $100,000. So if their minimum investment is, say, $50,000, I still like to see $100,000, right? Because I want to see that they have some, some significant skin in the game, um, whether they're rolling their acquisition fee in or not. But then the, what I prefer to see is usually between about 5 to 10% of that initial equity being put in by the operators. And that's what we do at our group is make sure that we, as a group, are putting in 5 to 10% of that initial equity on each one of our deals. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. I've, I've heard that before as well with the, you know, people saying, well, it's part of the acquisition fee, but you know, that's money cash that would have went in your pocket anyway. So it might as well be the same thing. Yep. So the first one was a successful background in business. We have uh, making sure that there's preferred returns full-time in the business. And we did uh, uh, this last one, which was, you remember? Oh yeah. Uh, skin in the game, brother. Skin in the game, skin in the game. All right. So the, ne the next one is going to be uh, making sure that uh, uh, the, in, the, in the distributions and the waterfall that the preferred returns are actually a return on capital, not a return of capital. Because it, again, if you know, if you understand what unreturned capital contributions are, that's you put in a hundred thousand and throughout the life of the deal, unless there's a capital event, usually then that that hundred thousand dollar initial capital doesn't go down. And so, but if you have a, a refinance or a supplemental, a supplemental that happens on it, and it, you, re, you get, say, return $30,000 of your initial capital, now that unreturned capital contribution is now $70,000. Well, your preferred returns are usually calculated off of that unreturned um, capital contribution, where if you are throughout the life of the deal, if your distributions are calculated as a return on or a return of your capital, now your unreturned capital contribution account is going down every time you receive a distribution. And so that also means your preferred return calculations are also going down. Right. So it helps the operator tremendously because they can show that they're actually, you know, uh, reducing the amount of money they're having to pay each month or each quarter, however they're making their distributions. And it allows for them to have better cash flows. It also allows them to hit their, their, their hurdles faster too. And so it only helps to me, the operator, not the passive investor. Because sometimes people will go, oh, well, if it's a return of your capital, then you don't have to pay taxes on it. Well, I'm already getting depreciation anyway on my cash flows that's offsetting it. So I'm still not paying for it, even on my return of return on capital, right? So making sure that you watch those different nuances, because sometimes those will, be, those will get put in uh, to, for various operators. You just got to watch that very carefully, because if it's, if it's switched up a little bit on you, you'll be surprised at what your return actually is on a deal. Yeah, for sure. Where would a passive investor look for something like that? Always in the PPM because they're not usually going to be putting that inside of any other document other than the PPM. And if it's not in the PPM, then you better be asking about it because that's something that should be disclosed inside of those documents. I'm trying to pull up this next, this article on here because I, I have uh, this, uh, I talked about it just the other day on, uh, on our website, passiveinvesting.com. There's a knowledge center on there. 
If you go there, that's where we kind of put a lot of these different articles about the unreturned capital contributions and various mm -hmm. things like that. So let me pull up this list. So no successful background in business. Uh, number two is part-time operator. Uh, number three is only one managing partner. So this is actually a big one that I should have touched on earlier on, which is uh, uh, having more than one managing partner on a deal. And the reason why is because I had a friend of mine out of New York City, and he invested $200,000 in a project with a single operator out of Georgia. And he brought in a friend of his, and he invested $200,000 as well. And about six months into the deal, they couldn't contact or get a hold of the main operator anymore. They tried to call him, tried to email him. They send somebody by the office or the house or whatever. Nobody there, right? They called the property management company. They couldn't get him either. And the property management company wouldn't talk to him about anything because they weren't the main operator, right? They're just the passive investor. The money was still there. So like he didn't run off with the money or run off with the property or anything like that, but they couldn't get a hold of him. And yeah. they're thinking about, they're like, well, how do we get access to this property? And, it's, and, and the problem is, is in those operating agreements, a lot of times you have to go through arbitration whenever there's conflict, right? Well, how do you arbitrate with somebody who's not there? So now they had to go through a court process to get a judge to issue the, the ruling to allow them to take it over, right? Yep. And it's possible that this operator could have just went ghost on them, right? And maybe uh, not on purpose, but like they went down to Mexico or Germany or wherever and got in a car accident and died. Nobody, you know, reported it back to anybody, any of the other investors. And so for me and our investments, my wife and I, we always make sure that there is more than one partner, preferably three, but at least two. So two to three is what I like. If there starts to get to be four or five, I started to get a little bit uncomfortable because to me that starts to feel a little bit more like too many cooks in the kitchen, if you will. Right. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that there's enough people in there, but not too many people that are, that are actually managing that particular business. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, when you've got five people, six people, seven people that have decision-making power, it's tough to come to a, uh, to an agreement on even simple things. Yep. So the next one on there was the no preferred return or preferred return with ketchup. And then uh, number five was modeling a refinance, which we talked about that. And then distributions as return of capital and then the no skin in the game. So I think we covered all seven of them. There, we nailed it, man. We nailed it. So it sounds like a lot to digest, right? So, you know, these, these listeners of ours that are attorneys and doctors, and they don't have a ton of time because they're, they're busy, busy professionals. You know, they work a ton of hours a week and they're looking at these alternative investment vehicles. I mean, you know, what's a good strategy to get started for these guys? I mean, how do you... Um, you know, what's a good first step? I think one of the best things that you can do is go out and interview various operators and just ask them a lot of these questions and, and align yourself and partner with people that are great, solid, reputable operators. And because most of our investors are repeat investors, right? So we just did a deal uh, on one of our most recent deals at the, we closed in December of 2020. We, had, we did an analysis on that. We had over 62% of those investors were repeat investors. So those are investors that they're not looking through all of our documents, you know, fine tooth and comb every single time they're investing. They trust us. They, they, they rely on us to be able to do what we say we're going to do and not throw weird things into these operating agreements that are going to, oh, gotchas or catches or anything like that. And they, they expect us to perform the way we have always performed. And so they continue to invest with us because we provide those results. But you have to be able to find other operators that can do the same thing. And they are out there. We're not the only group that's out there that's going to be able to do a lot of these great things for you and watch out for the investors. But to me, one of the best things you can do is spend some time initially going out, take this list of these red flags and ask them, hey, do you do this? Do you do this? Do you have this? Do you have this? And find operators that you want to align with that you can know, like, and trust 
and build that relationship with them and truly create a relationship with them, right? Don't just try to jump on their email list and that's it. You need to be able to have that connection with somebody on the team so that if you have issues, if you have problems, you can have that access and you have that transparency as well. Yeah, I love that, man. I mean, you can get, you can really just start with that list of seven things. That's a great place to start. And then just get on the phone, meet them in person, whatever it might be, have that conversation. You can kind of have that, that gut feeling, whether or not you vibe with them, whether or not you trust them. Correct. Yep. Yep. Um, so, you know, a lot of our listeners also are, you know, mainly just in traditional assets. They're in stocks and bonds and mutual funds. Um, and I'd just like to get your opinion on, you know, comparing, contrasting the two. I mean, traditional assets versus these alternative assets that, you know, makes up our world. I mean, you know, how, how do you get traditional investors to kind of make that jump to alternative assets and what are some of the things and some of the benefits of them? Sure. Most of the investors that come to us are ones that are already ready and they're already saying, I'm done with the stock market. I'm done yeah. with these traditional assets. I want out, right? And I think for me, what, the way I look at it is, is that there's a lot of volatility when it comes to the stock market. And to me, I don't, I, I only, I, I might have a little bit, I don't have my, I do have a little bit in the stock market, but I don't have a ton, right? And most of my net worth, not my net worth, but most of my real estate net worth is inside of the real, is inside of multifamily, right? And we're also in 2021 going into the self-storage space as well, because there's three things that do really well in a down economy and an up economy. Number one is multifamily. Number two is self-storage. Do you know what the third one is, Seth? Liquor stores? Alcohol, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. That's right. Those, nice. those, are the, those are the top three that do really well. So that's what we're going after. Um, but the biggest, the biggest thing that uh, – uh, what, what, what question were we asking, we're answering again? Uh, we were just talking about comparing contrasting traditional comparing contrasting, yeah. So the, yeah. the stock market. So for me, I don't like being in the stock market myself because there is a lot of volatility. And I find myself constantly looking at it. And, you know, getting worried about it, yeah. right? Because the thing's going <laughs> up and down and, oh my goodness, should I buy or should I sell or, yeah. you know, whatever the case may be. And to me, it's a lot more stressful for me to do that. And I don't have to be worried about, you know, world market conditions as much because I am now locking my, my money up inside of an asset that is going to cash flow nicely and it's cash flowing from day one. And I'm not going to have to worry about these ebbs and flows, right? They're mm -hmm. going to happen across, the, across a, 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 a stock or, or bond or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And especially nowadays, it's easy for people to kind of forget about that because everything, especially the stock market has just been up, up, up. And, you know, they have Tesla stock or they have Bitcoin and it's just through the roof, but it's going to come down. And, and that's the roller coaster of the stock market. I mean, you can, it just gets affected by everything all around the world, not even just in the USA. And, and, you know, people just kind of get caught up in that whirlwind. And then when it comes back down, reality is going to strike. And just, you know, to me, real estate is just such a more stable investment. And more, you can, can get consistent cash flow and appreciation over time. Yeah, and, and the other thing with the stock market too is, it's I always I follow it. Like on my iPhone, I have like a whole I, my tickers and stuff like that. I'm I'm not in most of the ones that I follow, but I'm always it's to me it's all, stocks are always like a oh man if I if I would have done that if I would have invested in that right, right I could have made X amount. But <laughs> it's it's usually the same way when you invest in it, you're like man. If I would have exited earlier, I could have exited at this amount, right? And so yeah. to me, it's just too much speculation for me and too much, too much concern and worry for me to want to put my money inside of the stock market. Yeah, agreed. Same here, man. Um, before we jump into the Freedom 4, just one last golden nugget for our listeners. One last golden nugget, I would say, is if you, if, if for, for the, going back to the delegation side of things, is I would say, 
make sure that you learn how to delegate be a master delegator. Because to me, that's how I've had the success that I have had is I have just been successful at, at finding and identifying great solid team members to join our team and be able to hire them in a way and give them the, the freedom that they need to be able to do things and then delegate a lot of tasks to them. Awesome. Awesome. All right, let's jump into the freedom four. Let's do it. It's time for the freedom four. What's the best thing you do to keep your mind and body healthy? So I, uh, I'm a regular avid reader of the Bible. And so that's one of the things that I do on a regular basis. Uh, of course, I'm you know, a part of my local church as well. And then I also work out uh, three times a week with one of, with a personal trainer. And then on the off on the off days, I'm usually either doing basketball or racquetball, kind of try to uh, stay fit. Nice, nice. They let you play basketball right now. <laughs> they do. Yeah, they, we're 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 getting together and, and playing a little uh, scrimmage. Like last night, we had a, had a team had a team. We had a, a group put together about 11, 12 guys that just got out there and and played for a little bit. So gotcha. Yeah, they're not letting us do that in California. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can always move to the East Coast. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, in an alternative universe where you weren't involved in your current businesses, what would you be doing? You know, honestly, I would probably be a missionary overseas uh, uh, doing something uh, completely different than what I'm doing right now. Very cool. Very cool. Where were you at five years ago and where do you see yourself five years from now? So, I mean, uh, five years ago, I was, you know, working in my business and, and putting out fires every day. And, you know, and what I, where I see myself in the next five years is, is continuing to grow the PassiveInvesting.com brand to a, a, a multi-billion dollar company with assets, with multi-billion dollars in assets. So our first goal is to get to a billion in assets under management, which right now we're on a trajectory to get there by uh, the end of 2022 to 2023. And so we have our goals in place to be able to get to that point. And so that's where we, where we see ourselves in five years to be able to continue to grow our wealth alongside of our investors' wealth. And, and we know that the only way that we can do that is to make sure that we structure things and align ourselves with our investors because, number one, we're investors in our projects first. Yeah, no doubt in my mind you'll get there, brother. Um, how has passive income made your life better? Honestly, it hasn't changed my life a bit, to be honest with you. Um, as far as the passive income come from real estate, and I say that because – we already have a great income coming from the clinics. We had a great income coming from the other businesses that we run. And so the real estate income hasn't changed my life at all. Um, it definitely is, is great to have, and it's allowed us to be able to have some additional safety and security to not have to worry about some of the more of the ebbs and flows that might happen in the other businesses. So I would say, when I say nothing, but I would say it hasn't <laughs> changed our lifestyle other than the fact that it's changed our, our safety and security blanket, if you will, because we have quite a bit invested now inside of the multifamily real estate side of things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, safety and security goes a long ways. I mean, a lot of people's biggest problem is money and where that next paycheck is going to come from. So whenever you have that passive income, whether it's from real estate or a different business, I mean, that can, that just gives you the confidence to kind of grow into the person that you can become. Yep, and I totally be. agree. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Dan, well, where can our listeners find out more about you? So there's uh, there's two different ways. So I mentioned one earlier. You can go to linkwithdan.com to connect with me on LinkedIn. I do write a lot of articles around these topics that we talked about today, and I publish them out there on LinkedIn. So you can go to linkwithdan.com. It just brings you straight to our LinkedIn profile, my LinkedIn profile, so you can connect with me there. And then uh, you can also go to our website, passiveinvesting.com. And if you want to join us on one of our future properties, there's a little button on the top right-hand corner that says, join the Passive Investor Club. Click on that, fill out the form, and one of our team members will jump on a phone call with you discuss your investment goals and see if we're a right fit for you. Awesome. All right, Dan, really appreciate you having coming on the show today. Awesome. Thanks, Seth.
Thanks, Dan. Whoo, Dan Hanford doing big things wherever he goes and whatever he does, whether it's medical clinics or real estate. He is just a true entrepreneur, a titan in the industry. I was really psyched to have him on the show today. There are so many great takeaways from that interview, especially in connection with delegation and automation and their importance to scaling any business. If you can delegate a task to someone and they can do it at least 80% as well as you think you can do it, it's a worthwhile affair. So you can focus on the unique things that only you can truly do. So again, it really boils down to creating more time and more freedom. To truly jump into my world, I'd love for you guys to join the Esquire Passive Investor Club by going to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com and clicking join the club. Also, check out all the other great content and freebies on the site. Until next time, folks, enjoy the journey. Thank you for listening to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast with Seth Bradley. Do you want more ideas on how to generate multiple streams of passive income? Then jump over to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com for show notes and resources. Then apply for the private Facebook community by searching for the Passive Income Attorney on Facebook. And we'll see you on the next episode.